Um, I'm going to turn to, uh, go to one of my favorite places in the Bible, and that's the book of Romans, and uh, read from Romans. Last week we talked a little bit about the fight, the fight of faith, that life is kind of like a war zone, and we're fighting for the souls of people. Um, I think War Room was uh, a movie that really left a lasting impression on me. I don't want it to be an evaporation. I want it to have a lasting effect. But the neat thing, last week we talked about from 2 Corinthians chapter 10, which is, you know, when you start going through different books, man, what a great chapter 2 Corinthians 10 is. It's there we find that, you know, our weapons are not carnal, but mighty through God. That, that the struggle we're in, and, and this thing about fight and war and weapons, uh, put on the whole armor of God, uh, take up the sword of the Spirit, have all this armament on us, and uh, all, all of that kind of lets us know that we're in this great battle. Every day we're in this great battle. And uh, we might want to sometimes call this time out, can we just have a break here? But, uh, you know, when we... When we fight this battle, we can't fight it with weapons that's been manufactured in the workshop of the flesh. But on the other hand, he said, our weapons that we have available to us are mighty through God to demolishing strongholds. Uh, And then he says, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. Think about this. The final words that Jesus spoke to his disciples, the largest gathering of people to see him resurrected in his bodily form, Um, that that group of people that he stood in front of and he told them to go wait in Jerusalem until they're endued with power and that after they received the power that they would receive from the Holy Spirit, they would become his witnesses. In Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the earth. In fact, he was telling them that I'm equipping you to be my witnesses to the ends of the earth. I think Mark records where he says, preach the gospel to every creature, to every person. It doesn't matter what their skin color is, where they're at, who they are. He said, this gospel is for everybody. Take this gospel to the ends of the earth. This is where we need, by the authority of the Holy Spirit, to bring ourselves under Christ's commands and really take that command seriously. Not just in giving to missions, but being what He said we would be, and that is His witnesses. If if we do this, if by an intentional say, where we say, I'm going to bring every thought that's opposite of being a witness. I'm going to bring that thought, capture that thought, bring it under the submission of Jesus. Let me give you an example. Because not everybody are going to be witnesses for Christ. They're just not going to witness to, to others. And here's, here's maybe a thought. Well, that's not my calling. Well, you, is that thought in line with Christ's command? Did he qualify his command? You don't see any qualifiers there. Everyone go out and be witnesses to everybody unless you're uncomfortable doing it. You know, or he gives a list of exceptions. You know, you know you're, if you're a, 
An introvert person, you know, well, it doesn't apply to you. Well, when you have that thought, I think that's when we have to start recognizing are our thoughts coming from God or from us? And that we capture the thought that I'm not called to do that, that's, I'm not comfortable doing that. We capture that thought and bring it into submission to Christ and say, Lord, I'm not really all that much of a people person, but I don't want to see people to go to hell. And I'm going to submit myself to be a witness for you. Every opportunity. I believe when we intentionally do, do that, we will experience a level and measure of the power of God that maybe we've never experienced. Because we stop making excuses about our participation and we started referring to, to Christ as the empowering person in our lives to take us if we're shy and bashful and help us to become a communicator of the gospel. Um, those who understand the gravity, we, when we understand the gravity, the sheer terror of someone spending eternity in a lake of fire, banished forever from the voice of a loving God, who loved that person so much that he sent his only son to die for that person. And to never hear that message ever again, forever banished from God in a horrible place of darkness, that boggles the mind to think of it. It really does. And Paul says something here we're going to get to in just a moment. It kind of challenges us. You know, I don't think I could feel that way. We're already looking at 2016. And I think uh, Larry said yesterday afternoon after our staff meeting yesterday morning, he says, you know what, I think this is the best staff meeting we've had since I've been here. And because we had a, a board meeting Monday night, and we talked about 2016 and vision and what do we want to write down what we want to see the church, what TFA looks like six months into 2016, just to think, just to say, where, where do we want God? Where, where do we want God to bring where we're at and where the church collectively is? And we carried that over into staff meeting, and, and all of a sudden these things just started like, well, we, we need a, a prayer emphasis to start the year off. And we started calculating things, and War Room is going to be available in December. So we got a date that we're going to show War Room, and it's going to launch us on a week of intercessory prayer. And we're going to be intentional about going after people. And we're going to end that week with a communion, a covenant communion, a pledge in ourselves that 2016 is going to be the year of harvest for this church. And uh, we kind of left that meeting a little pumped up. I think when we begin to think God's way, God begins to speak to us in such a way that it launches us out beyond what our comforts are. And, and God reminds us that it's not about you, it's about Him. It's not about me, it's about Him. So here we go. We're going to kind of focus on prayer tonight the important weapon of prayer. And I want to take you to chapter 10 in Romans, one of the great chapters on salvation. In fact, 
chapters 9 and 10 is going to be our focus this evening. Um, right in the early part of chapter 10, verses 9 and 10, are familiar words about salvation. Now, if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. The narrative of salvation continues on, and, and Paul explains how that works when he talks about how this works out. So here we have this wonderful message about salvation, this wonderful chapter. But if we look closely at chapter 10, we realize that there's more to it than chapter 10 because chapter 10 actually starts with chapter 9. Now, one of the favorite, my favorite chapters in the Bible is Romans 8. When you read Romans 8, it's all about life in the Spirit, how the Spirit of God makes the big difference in our lives. And then you get to Romans 9, and wow, what a shift from this description of life in the Spirit, and there, I'm, there's no more condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Wonderful words. Some of the greatest words about who we become in the Lord. And then chapter 9 is like a switch flips in Paul. And he says, I speak the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. <laughs> okay. You know, we didn't think you were lying to begin with, Paul. And, but I think he's telling them, you're, you're going to have to brace yourself for what I'm about to tell you. So I'm telling you the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. And then he makes this statement, my conscience confirms it in the Holy Spirit. You know, it might be reading a little bit different in what you're reading out of, but he talks about my conscience. The Holy Spirit is confirming in my conscience what I'm talking about. Now, he's just described this wonderful life in the Spirit in chapter 8, and he shifts into this, and he plunges into this statement, says, my conscience is being confirmed, and, and the Holy Spirit is confirming to my conscience these things. And what he means by conscience is this. Your conscience is where you know what is morally good and what is morally bad, and your conscience will say, you need to go with what is good, you need to embrace what is good and shun what is bad. And this is the context of what he's saying. And in the very next verse, it gets a little heavier. He says, I have great sorrow and unceasing agony, anguish of heart. It's kind of odd that after what he talked about in chapter 8, he, he tells them, says, I'm... I'm in great duress. My heart is in a state of anguish. I have great sorrow. Two different words here for sorrow and anguish or agony. Sorrow means grief, pain, affliction. But that second word where he says unceasing, by the way, he used the words, he uses the word mega, which we know is big. I have mega sorrow. I have Great sorrow. This is not just like, I'm, I'm, I'm a little down about this. He says, I am 
overwhelmed with grief. In my soul, I'm in pain. And he says, and this is unceasing. I don't get any relief from this. It's unintermitted. It's continual. I have continued. I live with this anguish. What anguish? And that's when, when you look at the very first verse in chapter 10, you know what he's talking about. It, chapter 10 actually starts with him telling everybody, I'm in great distress here because he said, Brethren, my heart's desire and my prayer to God is for Israel to be saved. He is summarizing what he's talked all the way through chapter 9 about. He says, now what am I doing about that? What am I doing about what I've just wrote to you? I'm, I'm praying and my heart's desire is for the people I just talked about to be saved. How much heart's desire and how passionate are his prayers. When you look at verse 3 of chapter 9, this is where we kind of like, I do not know uh, about that. I mentioned this before. He says, For I wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, those of my own race, the people of Israel. Theirs is the adoption as sons. Theirs the divine, the divine glory, the covenants, the receiving of the law, the temple worship, and the promise. He said, I wish, I could, if I could wish for myself that I would be cursed and cut off from Christ, this shows just how much duress he's in. Now, God is not going to do a hostage exchange here where Paul raises his hand, Lord, I volunteer to be away from you. And in return, would you just make sure that all of them get in? And the reason why he's, he's expressing the anguish of his soul, the reason why that's not necessary, think about it, someone much greater than him was already accursed and already separated from God who had endless fellowship for all eternity until those three hours on the cross when the sky became dark and Jesus said, Where are you, Father? Why have you left me? And the reason why, you know, I, I, here's what I Paul was telling what's in his soul, but God looks upon that and says, Well, that's not necessary. We've already taken care of that. But he's just telling how passionate he is for the salvation of Israel. And then he talks about what Israel, what, what is about Israel? And he ought to know because this is his country. This is his ethnicity. This is what he grew up with. And so he can recount all the benefits of being an Israeli, an Israelite, Jewish. He says, we're the ones who were the original adoption of children. We got the original adoption papers from all the nations of the earth when God chose Abraham and his descendants to be his own people. Be his own children, he says. We had the adoption of sons. We had glory. We got the glory of God. You think about the times God showed up in glory in relation to Israel. Moses went up on the mountain. The presence of God descended on that mountain. And the people were frightened by what they were witnessing. You know, they dedicated the temple after Solomon did the dedicatorial sacrifices. And it said the glory of God 
came into that temple in such a way the priest could not stand there. There were moments when the glory of God, the Shekinah glory of God, shone up. And he says, you had that. You had the literal glory of God upon you. And then he says, you are the people that God created covenants with. Unconditional covenants. You know, Moses sacrificing that animal, laying the halves out, had a, you know, a, a midnight vigil over that. And he said, the presence of God came down like a furnace and walked between the pieces of those, that animal to confirm the covenant that God was making with Abraham. Abraham did not have to budge. Most people, when they made a covenant like that, the way they agreed, the contract, was they killed an animal, sliced it apart, and the two parties would walk between them and agree on the terms of that covenant. When, when God made a covenant with Abraham, Abraham didn't have to take one step. God walked between it and says, you're the man. And from there, God continued to renew the covenant with, the, with his descendants. The giving of the law, the Torah, Moses. God gave them the first codified law. You know, in my discussions with, with atheists and I kind of had to, to give up my connections with atheists on Twitter because they was getting me too upset. But um, I wanted to communicate to them and talk to them. And one of the things is, well, how, it, it, where is the source of right and wrong? Who said things were right and who said things were wrong? Did we just come up with an idea? Or do we know innately that there's things that are wrong, that there's moral absolutes? And if anyone wants to challenge moral absolute, well, here's a good question. When is rape ever okay? If there's no moral absolutes. And, and I was like, the law came from God. God gave the first law. You know, if you want to read something interesting, go get Thomas Jefferson's uh, notes on certain crimes and the punishment for certain crimes. He really didn't like a horse thief because they, they got the death penalty under Thomas Jefferson's idea. But where, where do these laws come from? It comes from thou shalt not steal. Thou shalt not commit murder. Thou shalt not bear false witness. All these things, thou shalt not commit adultery. And... And when it all laid out beyond the Ten Commandments, you read Leviticus, there's stuff in there about uh, liability, personal liability, property liability, um, lying, being a false witness. There's all kind of, and and what's the punishment and what's the the terms of of them having forgiveness. And all of that, he says, this giving of the law came through Israel. God gave that law to Israel. Temple worship or temple service in some uh, translations there. Serving God in daily worship. That was Israel. They were still doing that when John the Baptist, before he was ever conceived, his dad went in to the temple to, to present the incense and everything. And that's where the angel appeared and says, you and Elizabeth are going to have a son. And he's going to be the forerunner. He's going to be the one who leads the way for Messiah. He was a priest. They were doing this. And the last is promises. 
They had everything going for them. And Paul was grieved beyond our imagination about their salvation, about their need for salvation. Messiah even says, the Messiah's came. The Messiah came through you. In verse 5, there's all the patriarchs, and from them is traced the human ancestry of Christ, Messiah, who is God over all forever. Praise, amen. It is not as though God's word had failed. And just watch this. We're going to read this just a little bit. If you're there in chapter 9, just read along with me because I believe some of this really kind of puts it in a good explanation for us. For not all who descended... Let me go back to verse 6. It is not as though God's word had failed. For not all who are descended from Israel are Israel nor because they are his descendants are they all Abraham's children. On the contrary, it is through Isaac, and this is a quote, that your offspring will be reckoned. In other words, it is not the natural children who are God's children. In other words, you can have a biological connection to Abraham, but that doesn't mean you're a child of God. But it is the children of the promise who is regarded as Abraham's offspring. And it's kind of neat what he does to compare. He says, now, listen, Rebecca's children, those twin boys, both came from Isaac. Through Isaac will the seed be blessed. Both of those boys could be the one through whom it's blessed. But it wasn't through both of them. It was through the the twin boy that was born second. And he even says he already had told and prophesied to Rebecca that the older will serve the younger, which was against their culture. But God already... So why did God make a distinction between Esau and Jacob? Just as it is written, verse 13, Jacob I love, but Esau I hated. What then shall we say? Is God unjust? Not at all. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy. And before you read too much into this, just read it. Don't try to draw connections. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. And I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. It does not therefore depend on man's desire or effort. You ought to underline this but of God's mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, let me just just stop right here. God didn't choose Jacob because he was a good guy. He was called Jacob because he had a hope of his brother's heel when those twin boys were born. And it actually means heel grabber or usurper. Deceiver, And he lived up to that. So here it is. Where's the mercy of God? Is the mercy of God in Esau not getting chosen? Or is the mercy of God that God chose either one of them? You see, are you following? It's the mercy of God. Someone says, well, why would God destroy us? He says, no, the, the question is, why would God let anybody live? As righteous and holy as he is. And so you couldn't say, you know, he knew Jacob would be a really good guy. And he says, that's my man. No, he 
It was not Jacob. It was not Rebecca. It wasn't Isaac. It was God making the decision. It was his mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, I raised you up for this very purpose, that I might display my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. God even says, I raised Pharaoh up for a specific purpose, and that is to make sure people heard of the power of God. The most powerful ruler on the face of the earth had to admit that he wasn't in charge. And that God used Pharaoh to make that point. Therefore, God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy and he hardens whom he wants to harden. This is... Let me ask you this. What word jumps out to you when you read this? It's a word I said, I think, last week. When I talked about I had I had somebody else. I cut him some slack because I had lunch with him Monday, and he said more than once, "Don't worry, there's no, there's not here. God is in control." And it was all I could say, like, "No, he, no, I don't think so." He said, "You don't believe God is in control? Think about the word. Everything happens. Is this coming from this?" from something else. Mute this and see if it goes off and then I'll change. All right. So it's not my mic. It was something else. Um, because I, I think the word control is it does not qualify what God does. Because he doesn't control us. He control you today? Anybody here, he controlled you all day. He didn't control me. I mean, I ate a, a cholesterol lunch at McDonald's today. I'm sure if he is in control, he says, you're not eating that. That's not healthy for you, buddy. Are you following me? He gives us space to make decisions. That's great. Because that's the way he wants it. He doesn't get any joy out of twisting our arms behind our back and saying, you will do such and such. He speaks to us, and it blesses him when we just move. But when I read this, and, and he made this category, categorical decision... That is not going to be Esau, which is supposed to be by the culture and the law, the most blessed of the two sons. It's not going to be him. It's going to be Jacob. And he says, why? You know what he says, why? Because that's what he wanted to do. He doesn't... It's like he says, it's none of your business. Because what? He's sovereign. That's the word that jumps out to me when I'm reading this. The sovereignty of God. And Paul is pressed about petitioning God for mercy. And Paul's worried about Israel. He's worried. He, he has anguish of soul and he's praying. And I think this is what's motivating him. 
He knows that God has done things in Israel strictly because God is sovereign. And he's saying, God, out of your sovereignty, do something about Israel. Do something about my fellow Israelites. He says, one of you will say to me, this is verse 19, then why does God still blame us? Or why does, why does God hold us accountable? For who resists His will? But who are you, O oh man, to talk back to God? I remember Jerry Falwell. Anybody remember Jerry Falwell? He was having a debate with some guy, some secular atheist. And, and I, that, that, that guy says, well, what I, I want, if, you are all, if you're right and there's a God... I want to hold a cancerous bone of a child up in front of God's nose and ask Him why. And uh, Jerry Falwell said, you're not going to ask God any questions. He's going to be the one asking questions. He's God. And this is what he says. Who are you to talk back to God? Shall what is formed say to him who formed it, Why did you make me like this? Does not the potter have right to make out of the same lump of clay some pottery for noble purposes and some for common? What if God... Boy, these are great questions here. What if God, choosing to show His wrath and make His power known, bore with great patience the objects of His wrath prepared for destruction? What if he did this to make the riches of his glory known to objects of his mercy whom he prepared in advance for glory? Even us, who he also called not only from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles. As he says in Hosea, I will call them my people who are not my people, and I will call her my loved one who is not my loved one, And it will happen that in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, they will be called sons of the living God. Has it dawned on you as we read this how merciful God is? How utterly merciful He is to move upon your heart, to speak to you as the creator of the universe. How then will they call on Him whom they've not believed? And how will they believe in Him that they have not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? And how will they preach unless they're sent? That's in chapter 10. So brethren... My heart's desire and my prayer to God for them is for their salvation. I believe that verse, in verse 1 in chapter 10, starts all the way back with Paul saying, My heart is under great sorrow. How can we become modern men and women who can claim, I have great sorrow and sadness in my heart for people to be saved. Somewhere in all of that, I think in our praying, and why, why pray? Why pray? Paul just described in chapter 9 that God in His sovereignty will have mercy on whom He will have mercy. 
and that God moves sovereignly upon people's lives and on their hearts to provoke them to faith, just like he moved on Paul's heart on the road to Damascus. So why pray? Anybody want to answer that? I have an answer. And it might not even be the right answer, but I have an answer. Anyone have an angle to it? Okay, explain. Prayer, go ahead and say it. Prayer changes our hearts. It doesn't change the heart of God. It changes our hearts. As we seek Him and, and listen to Him, it changes us. It doesn't change Him, it changes us. Yeah. Well, that was my answer. But Paul was praying and Paul prayed, prayed for Israel. And what happened, it kept Paul aware of his responsibility to be the witness. God could save anyone he wanted to and anyone he wants to without anybody doing anything. But he's put upon the church the mission of taking that good news to the ends of the earth. He says, I want you in on this. How do you, how do you, what things have you learned in prayer, especially interceding for, for people? What, what things do you do? I know prayer, War Room had some ideas in it. And I think you jumped on that. And, and I did too. I, I went home and started writing out some things. But what do you do in your prayer time that you can say, this is what helps me to keep my mind on what, people, what the needs are in people's lives? Because I'm telling you, you don't even have to try to become complacent. It just comes so easy. We can just get in our little world and our responsibilities and just keep trucking along and hand somebody a track every now and then and you know, invite them to church but we're not really consumed like what Paul said. So what do you do? Janice, you have a, a prayer wall, right? Maybe you can... I did give you a heads up on this. I'm not asking her cold turkey. Talk about your prayer wall. My prayer wall started when I was going through chemo and I had some students that's in my office at school that uh, made a comment to me when I was getting ready to leave on a Tuesday afternoon that they had put me on their prayer wall and they would remember me for the next three days while I was going through my treatments. And I said, what do you mean a prayer wall? I was just, I felt so bad. I hear, I hear my grown woman asking young teenagers this and they said, oh, we have a wall that's, one of them was in their bedroom and the other student was in, in the actual dining room and the whole family gathered around the wall that was in the dining room and prayed. But um, that started it for me and Linda and I had talked about it quite a bit and Linda, Linda put one in, in Mark and Linda's house too at the same time and it has been such a, a blessing. I mean, I've changed my wall so many different times praying about different things right now. It's a little bit too full. <laughs> it's running over. That's great. Um, Mark, you want to comment on your prayer wall? And, and listen, to, I think what Rhonda said is really what's at the point here is that God needs to change us. 
And we're praying for people. But when God begins to intensify his presence in our lives, we are in a better place for him to use us, right? Well, Linda, uh, she, uh, I think she got the idea from Janice and uh, asked me to uh, make her prayer wall because she said I run into people at the grocery store everywhere. And she said, I, I, I forget. I tell them I'll pray for them. And she said, it's important that I do that. And uh, she said, I forget. And she would take a notebook in her purse, and she, she met somebody, or if she talked to somebody she knew, she would make a note of that, and she would come back and put it onto her prayer wall. And every morning she would get up, and she would uh, tell me when I would leave. She said, now don't bother me for a little while. Don't call me. And I know she spent probably, you know, an hour or so in front of that prayer wall praying for each individual names. And it would, uh, you know, it, it would change a lot of people that she met in Arkansas. And she was really devoted to that prayer wall. And uh, it was only up till about two weeks ago I, I, I erased it and took it away. It was a real hard time for me. But mm-hmm. uh, uh, I thought it was a very, very good tool. And I probably, if I stay in that house, A lot of memories there. I, I think that's when we begin conscious of people's needs and we can write them down, probably that's the, the main thing. We need to carry something with us. Um, I've asked people to write, write down their name. Um, I'm getting to where almost I, everywhere I go, I use what I call prayer evangelism, and I just ask, what can, what can I be praying for you about? total strangers, and they're like, what? I said, I'm, I want to pray for you today. What is it that you need prayer for? And, um, you know, diff- different ones have said, one, one waitress at a Waffle House. I'm, I'm the missionary to Waffle Houses, by the way. One on the strip, and uh, she told me her name. Well, I already saw her name on her tag, and I, says, and I called her name. I says, I'd like to pray for you today. What can I pray for you about? And her eyes filled up with tears, and she said, um, I want my daughter back. And I said, how old is she? She says, three, and what's her name? Mackenzie. And I wrote it down. I says, I'm going to be praying. I've been praying. I've not crossed paths with that young lady since then. But whatever's happened in her life, it's just not praying for her child to be restored, but whatever's happened to create that that we're praying for God to heal that because there's a reason why she didn't have her child and she's having to overcome some obstacles but I told her before I left I said I believe God wants every mother to have their three year old and uh, it was kind of an emotional moment but I promised her that I would pray for her and that Brenda and I would pray for her and we have prayed for her and I'm still praying for her but somewhere in that I believe God can communicate her because, listen, God will have mercy on whom he will have mercy. And it doesn't have to be a big witness, but if we are a witness, look out. If we're intentional, say, I just don't want to go through life and pass people by and, and I'm going in one direction eternally and they're passing me going the other direction and I don't say, 
the, you know, that's a bad, bad destination that you're handy, uh, heading for. So anyone else want to share what, what things in prayer has helped you? The passage is, God is not willing that any should perish. And our praying affects us, but I believe it also affects the outcome. And, um, you know, both my in-laws were prodigals. After their divorce, they, Brenda's parents went off track. And we prayed and prayed and prayed. And both of them made their way back to the Lord before they died. And for my father-in-law, he was in a car wreck that should have killed him. But he lived eight days, and during the first part of that hospitalization in Jacksonville, Brenda and her sister had a chance to pray with him. And he made things right with God. Now, I, our prayers didn't keep that accident from happening, but I do believe that they had an effect on him staying alive long enough. We don't, know, we don't know how God works, but I tell you this, he wants us to pray and seek his face. Let's stand together. And if there's anything that should remind us about this is write it down. Write it down. This is why Sunday night prayer is so important. As we pray for every family in the church. We pray for all those missionaries that, that are in different parts of the world. People like Scott McGevney who needs a healing in his eyes, but also going to a country that we can't imagine how to live in it, a Muslim country. But when we join there, we are affecting the outcome. I believe that. We are having an effect. Whether we will ever see it with our physical eyes, we are affecting the situation. Lord, I pray tonight, can, can you just right where you're at saying, Lord, um, quicken my mind to be more alert to prayer needs and teach me how to intercede in a way that I can affect through my obedience to you 
through my obedience to the Holy Spirit, the outcome of that person's life. More than anything, Lord, is their salvation. Family members that we know that are going just as wide open the wrong way as they can, that you would have mercy upon them and that you would intercept them. Those who went through one stage after another of substance abuse, a behavior that's unthinkable, you still are not willing that any should perish. So to the greatest of sinner, their sin is no great. So it's not so great that grace can't save them. And wherever they're at, Lord, that, that voice, the voice of the Holy Spirit would penetrate their darkness and their pain and their anguish and their disappointments and their guilt to say there's hope, Lord. I just want to see us more and more in tune with the Holy Spirit as a church and be more involved in seeing people come to faith and seeing teenagers come to faith, seeing adults come to faith and fathers and mothers restored and marriages healed because we decided that we would spend time before you affecting the outcome of those situations. Encourage your people tonight, Lord, that stay the course no matter what we see, no matter how discouraged we may be, to stay the course, to stay in the fight, because the battle is not ours, it's yours. So empower us tonight, encourage us tonight, Lord, to follow after you with all of our heart, all of our soul, all of our mind, and let us see some kingdom work happen this week. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. God bless you.